Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 43, in which my guest will be Chris Goff. And if you don't know that name, you will by the end of the show, because Chris is another one of those wonderful former Titan employees that I love to have on this show now and then. And uh, he will continue, as you're going to hear in a few minutes, in that great tradition uh, that I've established of some of my former great colleagues and friends sharing their one-of-a-kind experiences working for the strangest company on the planet Earth. Uh, WWE. Before I get to that, a couple of exciting things that I want to make mention to all the listeners of Shut Up and Wrestle. First and foremost, if you haven't listened yet, please go over and check out the new episode, uh, new as I'm uh, recording this, the new episode of the Jim Cornette Experience from Arcadian Vanguard. It's episode 458. It's the one that was just posted on Monday, November 21st. If you take a listen, and if you are a regular listener of the experience, you will notice that there's a different Brian that is in there this week. It's not the usual voice you're used to hearing with Jim. And, you know, I could never, ever fill the shoes of the great Brian last. But for one week, I made a valiant effort to keep up with Mr. Cornette in the lion's den. That's right. I am the guest co-host of the Jim Cornette experience on this week's episode in which uh, Jim reviews, uh, among other things, AEW Full Gear. We talk about the previous week's Bridgeport edition, the go-home edition of Dynamite from Bridgeport's Total Mortgage Arena, where I was present in the crowd as a fan. And um, so I had a kind of a first a first-hand eyewitness account to be able to share on that show. It was a lot of fun to do. Uh, I I wish Brian last the very best, and of course, he's going to be back in full force. But for the time being, just please, uh, I hope you will listen and enjoy my moment in the sun with Mr. Jim Cornette. Also, would like you to check out the, uh, I may have mentioned this before, but uh, it's super cool, so I'm going to mention it again. The newest issue of Inside the Ropes magazine, issue number 26. I'm holding it in my hands right now. It's the issue with John Moxley on the cover in which my extensive article on the Samoan wrestling dynasty, the Anawai slash Maivia wrestling family, is in that issue. If you'd like to finally figure out all the connections and the family trees and whatnot, check out my article. It goes all the way from High Chief Peter Maivia down to Roman Reigns and Everybody in between, actually, even past Roman Reigns, Solo Sokoa, and all the the newest generation of Samoan superstars. So I encourage you to pick it up inside the ropes magazine.com. 
But right now, it's time to go to this week's conversation. As I said, Chris Goff, we knew him as Big Country back in the day, um, a, a member of the dot-com team, a member of TV Creative, uh, a, a funny and fascinating guy with some great insights this week that you are going to enjoy. If you enjoy my stories of working for the McMahon family and my direct interactions and things like that, you're going to love this conversation with Chris. So I am going to take you to that conversation right now. Okay, so I'm thrilled this week to welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle somebody who I used to work with at WWE, and um, I had not had any contact with and didn't even know that he still had any connection to the wrestling business until we bumped into each other at the Cauliflower Alley Club reunion this year. And we were able to kind of reminisce a little bit. And a lot of the memories came flooding back. And I decided this would be great to recreate on the show. Um, he is uh, somebody who really wore a few different hats over the years at WWE. Uh, and he has an interesting story to tell. Uh, of, of I first knew him involved with digitalmedia.com, which in those days was called new media because it was new at the time. And as, as a video producer, he later went on to work on the TV creative side of things. And as a producer and writer there, and uh, he's also these days a, a wrestling promoter as well. I knew him in those days as many of us did as big country, but uh, his actual name is Chris Goff. So welcome Chris to shut up and wrestle. Brian, I was trying to get more time with you at Cauliflower Alley Club, but you you were there so for some reason. You were trying to sell books. Crazy! And you didn't want to just talk about 2000 and the fishbowl, so uh, <laughs> we didn't get nearly enough time. So I'm glad we get to do this now. Me too. That was, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, God, I was probably the most delinquent bookseller in the nostalgia room because, <laughs> honestly, all I wanted to do was catch up with people and talk. And I kept walking away from my table and having to run back when I saw that people were there and wanted to buy books. But um, you know, I, I have to say, like, I, I don't know how else to put this, but I, I, I didn't. I mean, I certainly didn't expect to see you there just because I, I don't know. I, I didn't know you still had any connection with um, the business and especially from the, the TV creative side of things at WWE. You don't mm -hmm. see a lot of people from that world. You don't at, at Cauliflower Alley. And I think there should be more. But it was very cool to see you there. I think uh, I think the reason you don't see a lot of them is I, from what I gather, I'm not saying they're not fans, but I think the majority of the people that have been there since I was on the creative team in the early 2000s have, you know, virtually just been uh, Hollywood writers. You know, that's that's the big uh, cliche they use. Ho writers from Hollywood don't have any understanding of the business, but they come in and they want to be a part of it. Uh, you know, they're, they're recruited rather to be brought in. And I just, you know, they have obviously no connection to 1970s or 80s <laughs> wrestling, really. So I get why they, they don't show up there. You know, Cauliflower Alley is a very interesting thing to me. Um, I'm sure you have this too. Some friends of mine think it's a complete joke. <laughs> and then some friends of mine really enjoy it tremendously. 
tremendously. Uh, it's it's hard to explain to a wrestling lover about Cauliflower Alley Club. I like going there. I've been there several times. Um, I think it's uh, it's incredible access to the wrestlers who are there uh, and people like you to, to get to talk to and just you know. It, and plus, you're in Vegas, so that's always an added bonus as well. But um, I, I think it's for the I, I, the nice way I put it, the nerdiest of nerds that really love wrestling uh not mainstream at all like the uh just the old school and the uh vintage part of it they're the ones that go there um you'll you'll never see someone that fan access go to cauliflower alley club i i just don't think so well yeah but i mean sort of like what you touched on there it's partly a generational thing i think Mm -hmm. I, i also think you can't forget how much cauliflower alley club was rooted in even from the beginning going back to the 60s it was considered something nostalgic. It was not, it was, it was a way, especially in the early decades of it, when that first generation was still around who founded it, it was more like a fraternal order. You know, it was like, um, it was like the, an Elks Lodge kind of vibe where it was a chance for these guys to reunite with their friends in the business, especially if they had retired, you know, that whole generation like Thez and Bachwinkle and the destroyer and red Bastine and all those guys. And it was a chance. This was in a lot of cases, their one time of the year where they would all see each other. So that's how it really started. It, sure. it, it was a reunion, a true reunion. And over the years, as it's been more opened up to fans and, and other people in the industry, it's become something more than that. It's become kind of part convention, part award ceremony, part. So it's become this whole different thing. But it really, I don't think it ever was meant for the, the same purpose as you know your average, let's say, wrestling convention. It's a very different kind of an animal. It is. And, and that's why I said it's hard, it's hard to explain when someone's like, uh, the, you know, there's a sort of a I, mainstream wrestling fan. If I say, yeah, I'm going out to this Cauliflower Alley Club a reunion and they're like, well, what is that? And like you said, it's not uh, anything that I think that just uh, Joe Blow off the street would enjoy necessarily. But um, I don't know if you, you it's a very nostalgic vintage thing at this point. And I wish I would have started going, you know, 15 years ago too. like yeah. you said, Bachwinkle, Heenan, all these guys were there. I did get to see the the final years of like Mean Gene. And um, I mean, he was always there. JR used to be always always there. I mean, it's just, it's really cool. And like, like you said, uh, there's other like uh, indie promoters like Sheldon Goldberg. I had not really talked to him ever. And I've seen him being a indie promoter myself for years. I uh, finally got to introduce myself and talk to him and guys like that, that have been doing it for decades. It's just a, a melting pot of people in the industry. It's cool. Yeah, the first time I really got wind of it was um, when it was 2001. And it was because Luthez, who at that point was the president, was bringing he brought Kurt Angle to the Cauliflower Alley Club. And Kurt Angle at that time was brand new in WWE. He was one of the top stars, new stars in the business. And Thez was, you know, very enamored of him because he had real wrestling credentials. He was a shooter. He was somebody that Thez could understand. And it made him very happy to see somebody like that at a high echelon in the business. So he said, you know, Hey, Kurt, I'd love to bring you to this thing and introduce you to a lot of the guys. And we could make a connection to the modern world of wrestling. And and Kurt went and I didn't get to go, but I covered it in the magazine and I got to interview Luthez, which was wild. We talked for 
hours. I mean, like I had people in my office because I had them on speakerphone and I had guys in my office just sitting on the floor listening because <laughs> it got to the point where I just threw the questions out the window and I was like, all right, enough with Kurt Angle. Tell me about Farmer Burns. What was, <laughs> what was he like? You know, that's what I wanted to know. And it was incredible. But I talked to Kurt and, um, you know, I first it was on my radar. Like, this seems like a cool thing to go to. And I can, can only imagine. Can you imagine going in 2001? I mean, the people oh, yeah. that you would have seen then. It, it's a very different thing today, but I, I still enjoy it very much. So do I. And I'm glad we met up and I'm glad we're doing this today because I like you said, um, you were uh, working in Titan Tower with me. And uh, I guess you started there in 2000, you said? Yes. Yes. And and so I was I left to go to the writing team in middle of 2002 and was uh, gone from the company by mid 2003. <laughs> so I was there actually my time with WWE spanned from 1997 the summer to uh 2003. Um and it and I actually got to do a lot from uh, the television studio side first and then new media and then television writing. So it was uh it was for a young guy it was an awesome uh you know roller coaster ride but it wasn't something that I would want to do in my 40s because it's just taxing. <laughs> it is. Well, I have to say I, I think I'm assuming I think you're a little younger than than me, right? Yeah, I just uh, turned 45. Okay. Yeah, not much younger. Just a couple of years younger, but when you're in your 20s it makes a big difference. Uh even yeah. even 2 years could make a difference, but <laughs> I I remember um at when I first got there in 2000 just to set the table a little bit you were with new media and this is important I think for listeners we talked about this before we even started recording but at this point now it's it's decades on and I think it's it's attained almost this vintage status for a lot of fans of that era but bite this WWE's um and WWF's web well, how would you describe it there was a web, web show at that point yeah. it was called web show yeah but but bite this was something that you were involved with and um you were in, on the production side of it and that's something now that we can look back on and say that was really at the vanguard at the forefront of so much of what we see today i mean you're talking about what we would eventually what we would call today a, a video podcast or whatever the heck a vlog whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. on wrestling being done in you know 1999 2000 2001 i mean that's way ahead of the curve yeah well let me like you might find this interesting because you know some of the people involved possibly but when i started with the company my people always ask like how do you you know i still get it today not nearly as much like how do you work for wwe uh so in 1996-97 i was a broadcast journalism major at the university of missouri uh i'm from kansas city area so that's where i was going it's a great journalism school and uh at the time i was uh, in classes with a guy who his mother and lived in Norwalk, Connecticut. Now to a guy in Kansas city, Norwalk, Connecticut means absolutely nothing. But if you're from there, as you know, it's a couple, couple towns over from the Titan tower. Yeah. And so, um, so basically he said, Hey, my mom uh, does the hair for some of the people to work in uh, the, the tower. And she says that she can get our resume passed over for, you know, uh, internships. So would you like to do that? And you can stay at my house. I'm like, well, sure. That's awesome. You know, cause I was, I grew up a huge WWF fan. That's it. No one, 
no one in my family watched wrestling. I didn't go to local promotions when I was a child. I just watched like primetime wrestling, okay, and pay-per-views. Uh, so then when I uh, we put it in, and then midway through the semester, my friend's like, hey, my mom is actually moving to Minnesota, and I'm going with her, so we won't be there this summer. Sorry, man. And we had already put in all of our stuff. And I, to- I turned to my parents, and I'm like, I still really wanted to do this. You know, it's an unpaid internship at the time. Can you help me pay for this if I, uh, if I get it? You know, like, sure. So we end up, I end up getting it. And I had to interview with a guy with human resources at the time was named Matt DeLuca. Did, did you get, did you know him? Yes. I did an interview with him. I interviewed with Palma Brax. Yes. Um, Brax. She did my closing interview. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she did a lot of people's closing interviews. Yes, she not, did. Not mine though. Not mine. That was Danielle <laughs> Fisher, but, oh, no, uh, yeah. but yes, there were, uh, I do remember him. Yes, Matt DeLuca. Uh, so Matt DeLuca was the one that uh, I interviewed with. And I just remember it stuck out to me. And it, as, at that age, it didn't make any sense to me. But he said, hey, I see your resume here. Uh, we'd, we'd like you to come up. But uh, I just need to tell you, it says you're, you've been a fan. Because I put like, been a fan for 20 years and went to all these shows. And like he said, please do not tell anyone you're a fan. You know, they look sort of down at that. So do, I'm going to take that off. But like, don't, don't tell anybody you're a wrestling fan or a WWF fan. Which, of course, we've heard that through the years. They don't want fans there, right? But he was, this is the HR guy telling me that. I'm like, okay. So I get to go up there and I get to work as a, basically, a, I was an intern at the television studio there at 1241 Hamilton, which was away from the Titan tower. And, uh, when I got there, it was just, it was just so cool. You know, we, I, I, I argue all the time, not argue. We commiserate all the time. Seth and I, Seth Mates is another guy, uh, one of my best friend that I met at WWE. He still, uh, works in, in the New York. He still lives in the New York area, um, works for baseball America now, but went to New York Newsday after WWE. Um, but he ended up, uh, we we discussed that our era of being there, and for mine, it was 97 to 03. Uh, I could argue that was one of the best times to ever work for WWE. And it's I say that because so many big things happened, huge things happening all the time, whether it's companies dissolving, XFL, you know, um, I mean... People like the the, well, the whole job, attitude era, everything. Whole, I mean, yeah. obviously the attitude era, but just the the inner workings of everything were were just such a big company in motion. And Vince was in his mid fifties, and we were pitching on the creative team. We were pitching directly to Vince in a room of like you know five people. We were on the corporate jet every week, going to towns. I mean, it was like very cool for a twenty three year old kid, you know, twenty three, twenty four. And so, um, so I ended up getting the internship, working at TV. It was awesome to be at the TV studio. I've heard you do interviews where you talk about, uh, you know, how they have an archivist now and everything. But when I was there, it was the, like you said, I, I was in the tape library all the time. Cause that's one of the things an intern would do. I would put tapes back in the tape library. And at that time, if you recall, it was the like 20 foot high, yes. huge shelves that had like mechanical workings that you push a button and they would open up to that, that aisle. And he would go in and, you know, at that point it was quarter inch, you know, uh, VHS, three quarter inch, uh, you know, reel to reel. I mean, they were still using reel to reel very a lot then in 1997. So I would go in there and then I, I, I can't, I'll tell you now, like I found the Bobby Heenan show and like all these things that I wanted to fit to watch. And I would just watch them in master control, like all the time, uh, <laughs> because it was great. It was like, just like a, a fan's paradise of video that will never see the light of day. That'd be, this is before the WWE network and stuff. And um, it was fun to work in TV. And I got to be around a lot of people. Gorilla Monsoon was still doing voiceovers. Like everyone was still there from my childhood for the most part. And, um, and, you know, and 
they treated me awesome as a kid from the Midwest. And that's where I ended up really getting the nickname big country. Cause at the time I had a flat top and I was from college and I was a, a big white guy. So I looked like Bryant Reeves who used to play basketball from Oklahoma state. His name was big country. But um, anyway, that one of the guys from TV called me that, and that stuck with me uh, through throughout my run there. But that's then, then we transition over to the tower. I got a full-time job in 1999, Brian, and you know, at that time, WWE dot or WWF.com was the, the wave of the future. Internet was taking over. Cause when I got there, it was like, should I get a job for TV or should I get a job in the internet? Because at the time, I mean, it was just blowing up and you know, all the dot-coms are making everyone billionaires. And like, we, you know, I want to work for new media because Shane was my boss and I didn't know Shane at all, but I, I knew him from TV and the company. So uh, I went and worked there and new media and that we just thought it was going to explode. And that's why I took that path. And I remember, uh, first of all, I thought that Shane was the one that gave you the nickname Big Country. I never knew that. I, I always assumed that Shane gave you that name. <laughs> no, no. I do remember, uh, it seemed to me, I mean, you you would know, but it always seemed like Shane did like you a lot. Like he oh, really yeah. he really uh, liked having you around. I don't know how to describe it. Like, like he had kind of a soft spot for you. He just, uh, you know what I mean? Like, like he... He was impressed by you is the impression I always got. He just, you know. Shane McMahon was uh, my first real boss, and he was awesome. I love Shane. Now, we all know that worked for Shane, like as everyone that has a boss, the bosses have their pros and their cons, whatever. Shane was always, you know, I didn't know Linda all that well, so I always said Shane was my favorite McMahon. He was just like a nice guy. He was very excitable. Yes. You know, you know. yes, yes, he was. <laughs> and he was, just, he was a great, I mean, he, you know, anything negative you can say about Shane, you can say about anybody else that was in a power position in a company. So, I mean, what, whatever negatives people have to say about Shane ever are usually as far as like as, how he acted as a boss or got mad or whatever, that was stuff that anyone in power happens really. But uh, he was just a really fun dude. And at that time, Brian, and that's why I sort of have like a, a this like kinship with like you and like people in that era, we were all about the same age in our low yeah. to mid twenties. And it's like, if you, if you've ever had a job in your life, you usually remember the, you know, the job where you're all the same age and you all have that same growing into life to connection. And that's what we had there. Like, cause everyone in new media for the most part was, you know, 21 to 27 at that point. And, and we were all just uh, riding this wave of the attitude era and it just blowing up NWO sparring what it spurred into WWE and uh, and it was just it was so much fun and so you know it was like a frat house really and and Shane was yep. the king frat guy that was That's, what it was I've used that term for sure um, it was you know the the HR department's worst nightmare we oh, were yeah. just saying and doing whatever we felt like I, I think back on on some of it now and and I'm just like I can't believe we got away with these things but the thing about it was uh, you know I agree every with everything you said. There's never been another job like it. And in a way, it spoiled me for any other job. And it almost made me uh, completely unable to fit into the corporate workforce. Because how do you follow something like that? You know, it was like um, uh, even at the time, and I'm sure dot com was the same way. Everybody was so tightly knit. Like, uh, I've never had a job like that. And when you're in your 20s, you think every job is like that. We were like, it was like Goodfellas, Chris. I mean, where what I mean by that is 
We would invite each other to our kids' birthday parties. We would see each other socially outside of work. We would have these happy hours and things. And like it was, you know, I, I had people, you know, my wife knew, like the wives knew each other. The husbands knew each other. My wife had my boss's phone number. To, yeah. you, you know, it was so tightly knit um, that even to this day, there's a bond where you know we still some people still get together and and you know go for drinks and talk about the old days and like no other job i don't have any other job where i do that you know i've had one other job since then i came back to kansas city and be and went into sports anchoring and 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 reporting and that that job also sort of had you know because i was still in my 20s at that point so it still sort of had the same age group but i mean wwe was definitely number one and seth and i talk about this all the time we had our dream job straight out of college and uh it's hard to there's good and bad about that you know it's like yes. you you can build up to your dream job and sometimes i've seen people do that in the sports world they they go into sports and they do local jumping around different markets and they finally get to espn and they find out espn isn't all it's cracked up to be it's like <laughs> they drive they they drive you into the ground and they, you just don't want to be there. And it's like, I thought this was going to be so much better. Uh, I've actually, uh, in my life, I think it's helped me a ton for that to be my first job because um, after losing it at such a young age in my mid twenties, uh, I just sort of got a lot more perspective on the world as far as loyalty. And like, uh, you know, mm, it, yes. it jumps, it added to my cynicism that I already had in life, which I <laughs> like, I, I do it out of, out of comedy purposes really, but it's um, it does allow you to sort of understand, understand how the world works and that not, you know, not everything is going to be just because you work really hard and love your job. is not going to mean you're going to be there for 40 years. Like your uncle was, that got the gold watch. So mm, I, yeah. you know, I, uh, I agree. I mean, I'm, I was a transplant, so I came back home after a while, but if I was still in that area, I know I would still hang out with several people that worked with me there all the time. We, whether I don't think coaches is there anymore, but Bobby V's and like, we, there are all these places yep. in town that Jimmy um, Seaside. Yeah. Yes. That was, uh, and I know Jimmy Seaside was right down the street from uh, Johnny K's, which yeah. was where everyone would go get their illegal drug and ephedrine and other things that now you can't buy anymore. But at the time I would go in and get by the truckload. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big thing for a minute there. The <laughs> You really brought something back that the, the stacker two and all that stuff to the point. Yeah, where they but no, but I, but they were, they were buying like raw ephedrine there. Okay. I mean, this I, I had a crazy story. I don't even know if I should be telling this story, but I th this made me think of this. There was a time because because Shane loved that stuff. There, there was a time where we were in the office and he was just going around from office to office, cubicle to cubicle, just going, hey, hey, does anybody have any ephedra products? <laughs> anybody? Do you have any ephedra products? <laughs> and it was just the strangest question. Like, no, I, I'm not even sure I know what that is. But no, I don't. I don't have any Fedra uh, products. Oh yeah, no. Uh, I was sent there to buy that multiple times, <laughs> uh, not by just him, by other people that you know, because I was you know, low man on the totem pole at some parts there. So um, 
and yeah, Johnny Case was definitely like it. Definitely felt like this is the front for like sort of a drug ring, but not like not not heroin or anything. It was no. just more like uh, stuff that was borderline. Like one day, you know, the drug administration would probably say this isn't good for you. You know that kind of stuff. But right, but at the time it was totally above board. H- they they H- were a H- sponsor. H- they were a major sponsor oh, of yeah, yeah. our of our shows, and we had advertisements in the magazines and things. It was just. Yeah, I mean, it, not at all uh, anything that was, you know, illegal or anything. No, at least but they, they were buying HGH there off the counter, you know, <laughs> from the back. I mean, but that wasn't looked, that was not, that was okay then. That wasn't was. looked at as like what it is now. I mean, it was, uh, you know, uh, creatine was the precursor to all that too. But, you know, I don't know. It was, that it just brought me back that memory of like having to go over there because it was down the corner over there by John uh, Jimmy Seaside's. But uh, yeah, it was it was a fun area to grow up into because you could take the train. You know, you're from there, but you know, but for a kid from the Midwest, like taking the train to to New York City and like being sure you catch that last train to come back home or you're like screwed until like 5 a.m. or whatever. That was uh, all. Re- I mean, because we went to WWF New York constantly and it was really fun to go down there because it was new and everyone was very excited. And we do live broadcasts from down there. And it was uh, I love that. But much like the ESPN zone, it's gone to the dodo bird. Yeah, I, I just had that. Metro North experience last night because I I went to uh, uh, Keith Elliott Greenberg's book release party in Brooklyn and I decided to take the train and not drive and I stayed a little extra late and that because I hadn't I wasn't even really thinking of it and then I got to Grand Central Station and I was like oh my god the last train leaves in a half hour otherwise uh-huh. I'm going to be sleeping in this station yeah. I, I I forgot all about that but yeah I, I used to go to WWF New York a lot not as much as you but then it became the world and I remember yes. I got the great the greatest business card I ever received I went there I forget the guy's name uh I was covering when Chris Angel had like yes. his residency there I got to mm-hmm. interview him And uh, the guy running the place handed me his business card. I can't remember his name for the life of me, but underneath his name, it had his title and it said vice president of the world. (laughs) And I just thought that's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. How many times are you going to have the chance to actually put that and make it real? Right. Uh, Right. When I go to Vegas, it still makes me smile to see Chris Angels out there all the time because I remember. Uh, nothing at WWF New York. And, you know, he was like, I remember them saying like, yeah, we got this guy. He's going to be like an illusionist out there. His name's Chris Angel. And we're like, who's this loser? You know, whatever. Now he's making millions in Vegas. But um, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was, that was that whole WWF New York. And then of course XFL. And then the movie started later. There's so many cool divisions that, um, that, you know, I always defend Vince, uh, you know, because people are like, why doesn't he just stay in wrestling? Why, why does he go all these other things that, obviously fail you know and i'm like because that's what makes vince vince anyone that's an entrepreneur doesn't want you can be great at wrestling but it's so boring after 20 years you know like i want to do something else and if it fails whatever i've made enough money over here to fail at other things but i mean yes like an average person that's making a normal salary says that but if you're a dude that's like vince that sleeps an hour a day and you know outworks anybody a tenth of his age i mean yes he wants to do other things you know i think the thing with vince with regards to that is i have over the years i've really come to believe this i think uh, what his dream was and it didn't really work out this is probably like the probably one of the bigger disappointments maybe of his professional career is he i think he was envisioning 
that in the same way that like if you look at the Walt Disney Company, right, Mm -hmm. the Walt Disney Company started as an animation house producing cartoons, cartoon shorts, cartoon features. And if you look at the Disney Company today, yes, they still do that. But it is the tiniest little part of the whole machine of everything they do. And it's probably not even the thing they're most known for today. And I think that he envisioned one day WWE being that, that wrestling was like, yeah, that's how we started. We still do that. That's part of our thing. But all these other things we do are much bigger than the wrestling. I think that's what he had hoped for. And it, oh. it that never happened for him, obviously. No, that that's uh, I mean, that's been talked about a, a lot, like how he wanted to be the, the Walt Disney. You know, he, he said that 40 years ago or to somebody, you know, he wanted to be the Walt Disney of wrestling. And I yeah, I think he wanted to do that. And if you look at all the things that he tried to do and still some are still hanging around, but he tried to do so many different divisions to, you know, diversify what WWE meant as a overall company. That's why one of the reasons, not the main reason they called it entertainment at one point. But it's, uh, you know, it. Yeah, I mean, sure, he failed, but he's made uh, at some little side project things. But I mean, uh, I could argue that Walt Disney was it was in an era where that was a lot easier to do than when Vince was trying to do it. You know, twenty. Yes later and uh you know i say that all the time now that you know sometimes it's best to be first you're not always the best but it's best to always be first and um you know vince was an unbelievable guy i mean as you know uh we had incredible access to him then like i said just in his mid 50s so we were on that we would go to the gym constantly there like seth and i we would be there at weird times of the night and vince would be in there and Almost every time we're in there. I mean, Vince did like three workouts a day minimum. You know, it was crazy. And he'd be in there with Gary Perna, who was his little bodybuilder, uh, former police officer, like trainer guy. And, um, you know, they would just be in there constantly working out. And we got to have a lot of like personal conversations with Vince there, as personal as you could get with Vince. Sure. But, uh, but it was, it was, it was really awesome. You you talk about guys that you're sort of uh, in awe of talking to. I mean, of course, getting used to talking with Vince McMahon, which I don't know if you ever really fully do, but that was a, a fun ride while you were there. Yeah, and I had some access to because of Shane. I mean, it was working for Shane directly gave you access to Shane's dad. I mean, we were able to say, I mean, I think sometimes – to our detriment where, where Shane was like, Hey, run this by my dad, see what he thinks. And I'm like, really, really, do we really need to do that? But see, again, I wouldn't have had the opportunity, even if I wanted to do that, if I wasn't working for Shane and he, he definitely put us in front of Vince a lot of the time. I mean, when we had the 20th, uh, sorry, the 10th anniversary of Monday night raw, um, Mm -hmm. he got me a limo interview with Vince, which I've talked about many times, but it was Shane that made it happen where I took the train down to the New York sales office in Manhattan, the ad sales office where Vince was having a meeting. Shane and Vince came out of the building. Um, Shane introduced me to Vince. I think that might've been the first time I ever talked directly to him and put made the introductions put us in a limo left <laughs> and now it's just me and Vince and Vince's limo driver in bumper to bumper traffic so we're in the going back up to Stanford so we're in the car for like hours mm-hmm. and uh yeah i mean i we did the interview and then we just talked about our families and whatever else we ran out of questions and um i got to listen to him on the phone wishing uh leaving a <clears throat> a happy 50th birthday voicemail message for Liz DeFabio, yeah, yeah. <laughs> things like that. 
Um, you know, he had like a stack of protein bars in the back. And of course, he, was, of course. he kept offering me protein bars. No, I'm good. No, thanks. <laughs> but I mean, those kind of things would never have happened if it wasn't for Shane and the access that he gave us for better or for worse to him, you know, and we would be pitching magazine ideas to him, things that I always felt were like beneath Vince. Like, what does he care? <laughs> you know, he sort of, I would hope he kind of trusts people to do this kind of thing, but he was very hands-on about stuff. I mean, um, not every, you know, Shane was approving covers and things, but occasionally Vince would have something to say and about a cover or have things that he wanted us to do, or he'd blow something up and we'd have to start from scratch. And that kind of thing happened. And I did have occasions where I was directly, you know, kind of pitching things to Vince or explaining things to him of why this works, I think, and this doesn't work. And it was a wild position to be in for sure. I was going to say, I mean, like, how awesome is that to tell somebody now, especially since Vince is out of the picture at the moment or ever forever, who knows what's going to happen with that. But I, I think, uh, I mean, that's so cool that you got to do that. And I look at that all the time and I'm like, man, we were Seth and I, and you know, at, on the creative writing team, when I got there, it had just split into two brands. So the raw brand was Brian Gore. It's Ed Kosky, who is still there. I mean, I cannot believe Ed Kosky is still there. But, I mean, mm -hmm. 20, 20 years on the writing team is a million years. It's dog years. But I uh, – so it was me. It was Gewertz, Ed Kosky, Michael Hayes, and myself were raw. And then SmackDown was Seth Mates, David Lagana, Paul Heyman, and Bruce Pritchard. And Bruce was mainly on the phone at that point because he was down in Texas. Um, but, uh, you know, it was just looking back. I mean, I hear now there's 30 writers and they don't pitch it straight to him. They pitch to Stephanie who then gets it to him. But uh, it was such a cool experience to be able to, to you know, in the attitude slash ruthless aggression eras to be around Vince on a weekly, almost daily basis. But like you said, I agree. My two bosses there were really Shane and Stephanie. So I guess I sort of took for granted how much <laughs> access I had to with him because, yeah, I'm with the, both his kids. And uh, I, you know, that was uh, not planned, but it ended up working out that way. But one of the most uh, you you talked about um, him pitching, uh, you know, trying to get things approved by Vince for the magazine on the website. One of the best uh, stories that came out of Bite This. Now, when I got there, we started, they had sort of a third party company doing video production for WWE. And it was, you know, like these are the early days of the internet, man. It's sort of hard to think about it now with all they've accomplished since then. But then it was, they were paying this like just, local place in Connecticut company to, you know, uh, digitize all the videos, put them in different speeds. If you recall, 28, 8, 56K, you know, 100K, 300K. That was <laughs> yes, our four yes. speeds. And then, um, you know, we would we would do that. And so then when I got involved, we started doing more shows. Uh, there was other people like Lucas Swineford there. Bill Banks was there. And what we ended up doing is uh, Lucas was one of the first hosts of some of these web shows. Uh, and and it ended up uh, the the run of Bite This that people would remember the most would be Kevin Kelly and Dr. Tom Pritchard. Uh, I would get and I got to produce that show and um, we would have Howard Finkel come on and do trivia stuff. I'd try to bring in as many peripheral people as I could. And when it went on, I was a friend of Darren Drozdoff's. And so when he had his accident with a D-Lo um, and he was paralyzed for life, he ended up doing segments on Bite This. And then he would do uh, My Two Cents. I think he ended up doing stuff in publication. Did he do publication yeah. stuff? Yeah. yeah, he had a column for a while in the magazine. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So when I, uh, so he was a great guy. And there was all these like little segments we did to make that show fun. But one of the best things with Vince is, if you recall, before the big article that I know uh, everyone was involved with when Stone Cold walked out, like the week before, 
before that, <laughs> he was on Bite This. Stone Cold was, and yes. he was talking to uh, Vince. He was talking to sorry Kevin Kelly and, and Dr. Tom Pritchard, and basically said that the cre- I mean, he was super blunt. He said that creative was piss poor. Uh, you know, they they needed to uh, they were they were garbage. They need to fire everybody. All the stuff, and you know, Ke- I'm just in there behind the cameras, and you know, <laughs> Kevin and Dr. Tom looking at me like we're in deep crap here. You know, like I don't know what's gonna happen when this gets out, and um, so. After that, we get a call from Vince McMahon, and he asked permission if he could be on Bite This the next week. Oh, <laughs> and we man. were like, "Holy God!" You know, this is like this is this is like getting a huge get on a talk show or something. You know, like. And so the next week he came on, and he was typical Vince. I just remember he came on, and like one of the first things after all this controversy, he comes on, and he, Kevin Kelly says, "Hey, Vince," and he's like, "Have you gained weight?" Oh, <laughs> like it was like well little and he's like yeah i could tell I, I mean that is just so vince it's like funny and so um but he wanted to come on and he he talked about how you know how, you know just basically in a nice way the politics of how it all works and how he's working with steve and he wanted to make sure that he was like how incredibly uh big part of the company he was and you know that as you know and it's been talked about to death about how he was going to job to Brock Lesnar and he felt he should be built up to that blah 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 that's that's what led to that but that was uh it was every once in a while Vince would pop his head in and someone would alert him to um to what was going on and he would get involved at that point and if you recall the uh what was it called the WWF uh, web rumor report that yeah. would go out daily. I know Seth was doing that a lot. Other people did it too. I think Finkel started doing that, but that would go, that was basically where they would copy and paste all the major stories and all the, on these websites that were putting out stuff like rumors and it would be sent to Vince and a bunch of other people every day. And sometimes that would lead to him coming down and being, you know, involved more, but it was fun. It was cool when he got involved. It was scary, but in hindsight, it was really cool. <laughs> well, because it was those wild West early days of not just, wrestling on the internet but just the internet where where it it was something that had never existed before and from the wrestling standpoint it was exposing things that had never really been exposed to the rank and file fans before so i think there was this feeling of how do we get our hands around this what do we do with it like i remember the phase in those early years when kind of like what you're saying where they were trying to almost beat the dirt sheets or beat the gossip sites. And they were, they were reporting on web rumors and gossip. And I think even for a while we were putting taped SmackDown spoilers on the website because we were trying to beat the other websites that were posting spoilers to our shows, which is crazy. We were spoiling our own shows. If you think about it, but it's like, they didn't really know, what the internet was going to be in those early years. Like I'm assuming, cause you said you started in 97 that that was right. So you were there like right as new media became a thing, because I remember I didn't even work there yet, but I still followed it. I remember Shane being announced as the head of this new media department in 97. So that had to be around that time. And well, like in 97, right? I was still where I was working at the TV studio. So I didn't come to new media oh, okay. until um, sort of early to mid 99. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it was really, it wasn't too fleshed out when I got there in 99, but it, it had actually grown some. And like you, I've heard you talk about your trials and tribulations with the new, with the magazine department about like, what are we, are we shoot? Are we work? Are we, are we going storyline? Are we going all back? stage rumors all this stuff that was how the web was too and it was uh, shane was very much 
progressive and wanting to it to be uh, a competitor to the other news sites. And he wanted us to sort of go head to head with them, wanted us to beat them to our own news. And, uh, and that was okay for a while. And Vince probably off his radar, wouldn't say anything. And then at some right. point, something would be said to him and it was like, okay, we're stopping this all. We're, we're going back to purely, uh, you know, sort of helping the storylines move on. We're not doing anything else. So, uh, yeah. it, it was, it was, people were trying to find their path on that. And frankly, I don't, in a wrestling company, I think it's still hard to say what they really are now outside of just, uh, here's a recap of what happened on our TV shows. But I, I that's been a, that's been a process for years. Well, now it's gone the route of where it's, it's basically video. I mean, that's like what they're all about. And I know that that's what was being pushed and pushed for years was the emphasis on video, as you would know, you know, better than most. And sure. I'm coming from it from a text point of view. And I'm going like, there is now the articles are out the window. There's nothing to read on there. There's no, it's strictly just video clips from the shows, things like that. Like it's become a very different animal. It's not a news outlet anymore. It's become very different from what it was. I remember when it first started and you, this is when I guess before you were in new media, but you were still at the company, I guess. Um, WWF.com was so different. I remember it was very, when it first launched in 97, it was very interactive. There were message boards. Message boards were a big part of the site where fans could comment and interact because I guess that was seen as the wave of the future. And this is really funny. What killed the message boards, I remember this clear as day, was Montreal Screwjob. <laughs> because I think they must have seen, oh my God, we do not want like, we don't need to have this interaction. This is not benefiting us because the message boards were getting flooded with what the hell just happened. What did yeah. you do to Brett? How could you do this? And I think that the message boards died. But in the earliest incarnation of the website, it had tons of fan interaction. But then but that ended because they didn't really want the interaction anymore. <laughs> Well, I, like you talk about it, have, starting with that, that's because it was so big on uh, AOL. You know, WWF yes. AOL was a huge thing, and they had so much interaction there. And, you know, Jim Monsey's worked at AOL, and then he ended up coming over and helping Shane run new media. Um, and that was that was a big part of what they did on AOL. So they brought it over, again, not really understanding what that would turn into when they did that. But, I, you know, it's still funny to me to sort of, it's pretty ironed out now, obviously, with WWE Network and now Peacock. It, they don't really have this issue. But for years, the whole problem, it started when we were there. We would start doing, when I was there, we were we started doing the streaming pay-per-views. And they would charge, I want to say, like 15, 20 bucks for the streaming pay-per-view of whatever, you know, Unforgiven or whatever is coming on. And, it's, and you would get a little, you know, you'd get some extra bonuses with it, but you would show, watch the show. And of course, the as with anyone then, the trick was you could watch even if you could watch it all you had to say is like oh the stream didn't work and they give <laughs> your money back you know it's like it was like are we making any money on this I, I don't know but uh but there was no way to track whether or not it actually worked or someone actually watched it or whatever and uh i mean that stuff was going on for a decade plus after i left they were still like yeah buffered it was horrible you know i, I want my money back i would hear i would see that for decades you know and it's like Man, this started in like, you know, 2099 and it's still happening. Yeah, no, uh, it was uh, a lot of figuring things out in those days. I've also I've seen it even in print. 
you know, how, how much things have changed because print was my world there. I mean, the magazine division is gone. They yeah. folded it in 2014. So long gone at this point. And even the programs, like I used to work on all the programs. And when I look at the programs now, all it is is a is an autographed picture book. I mean, it's beautiful. It's gigantic. Sure. It's glossy. But they don't need writers anymore. They don't really need uh, the layout is very minimalistic. It was like exactly where they wanted to get it, where it's just strictly uh, photography, you know, so I guess that's the way that's what they wanted, you know, less and less uh, of, a, of a place for writers and editors like me. But I want to say a couple of quick things because I know I, I like to keep to my time limit here. But one thing, because I also want to talk about the Central States documentary you did, because I think that's incredible. Um, but cool. I, I, I quickly want to say that um, what the, the trajectory you took was actually the one that I worked really hard to avoid. And <laughs> and we talked about this and it was like, unfortunately what happened with you and, you know, we don't need to get into all the, the, the details of everything, but it was exactly what I was afraid was going to happen because with magazines and we had writers and we kept hearing from Stephanie and all of her people saying, Hey, uh, you know, do you think you have any guys that want to come over here and try to write for TV? And we got a couple of offers and I always said no. And it was because I thought, you know, if I do that, I'm going to be gone in like three months. And yeah. if if I don't do that, I actually have a chance of having a decent career here. And I also, I had a family already. I had kids and I didn't want to be on the road constantly. And although in later years, they actually had writers that were like based in Connecticut that yeah, didn't it have like to it, travel. Yeah. Uh, but I avoided that like the plague. And I feel like what happened to you and other people was that scenario of like they they it's like a like a, a grist mill, you know, they just rip through people and the turnover is unbelievable and the burnout factor. And I really wanted to avoid that. Yeah, you know, and you were smart to do that if you wanted longevity. But I, I think when you're 20 four or five. I mean, you know, that was the era, maybe not so much now, but that was the era of everyone knew who the writers, TV writers were at that point because of the internet. You all knew who I got there and Ed Ferrara and, uh, you know, and Vince Russo were still there, you know, and I remember the day they left and like that, you know, the next morning, everyone was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? You know I mean? That wasn't, it was just funny because it had just never happened before. I mean, I, I, that, that taught me a lot about life too. When you're in your low twenties and someone leaves that you think is like a linchpin to the company. No, the company's going to keep chugging forward and they won't care about you in about two weeks. It's, <laughs> I say that about everybody. When my friends are like, oh my gosh, David Letterman is leaving television. How are we going to fill this void? Well, like two days later, no one cares. It's just sadly how it is. I, it's, <laughs> it's just the reality of the situation. But when we, when we start, like everyone wanted to be a writer. And so uh, I just... I'm glad that I took the path I did, to be honest with you. It was a great path for my life. And I wanted to, and I have nothing but great experiences <clears throat> doing that as far as if I would, I've always would have wondered what if, um, but uh, yes, Shane McMahon made it quite clear to Seth Mates and I, because when we wanted to do this and we had been in dot com for a while and frankly, you know, 
I don't know. I don't have ADHD like uh, Shane or anything, but I was sort of like, <laughs> am I going to do dot com for like 20 years? Like I, it wasn't something I wanted to do forever. You know, uh, maybe you get a little bit more diversity on the uh, magazine side of things, but like, uh, you know, it wasn't something that I I was either going to go to TV studio or possibly try to be a TV writer. So at that point, uh, Stephanie had just been put in charge of that. And Shane told us that, you know, guys, I know you guys want to do this because we sort of made a pact. We're going to try this together. He said, uh, you're probably, it's like a manager in baseball. You're hired to get fired. I mean, it's just how it is. Uh, No one's really that good uh, forever. I say that Ned Kosky's still there. But if you are outspoken in any way, you're not going to last very long. And Brian, I, I, I think you would probably go in the same way that Seth and I did, where it's like you see things and you want to help out and you want to say things and you don't necessarily know you're going to get heat for it because you're sort of ruffling feathers. And mm-hmm. at that age, you don't know you're doing that, you know. But he, he warned us. He probably warned you too, if you want to, you know. Yeah, he did, which is, I hate to say it. I mean, it's its such an unhealthy way to do things. It's like anybody who speaks up and has something to say critically or whatever, we're going to fire them. You know, it's like, but you're but you're not going to admit that that's what you're doing. You're going to say, yeah, we want to hear everybody's ideas and we want to hear blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but you don't yeah. really want to hear that. Like, like, I feel like even in some of my later years there, that was happening with us. Like, um uh being set up to fail or being exposed to too much like uh, i don't think it did me any favors to be in all those board meetings and be around the tv writing people and be around vince it just put me on radars that i didn't want to be on you know i remember (laughs) we did um a cover with big show and i apologize to listeners if i've mentioned this on here before i know the story we were, tr- you know, the story. I know we, the story. We were trying to recreate the the George Napolitano Andre the Giant picture where he's holding up the women wrestlers on his arms. We did it with Big Show, and we made the decision to not have him in his wrestling gear like Andre was, to have it be the 21st century version. And we had him in a nice shirt and a suit, you know, looking very professional. And we thought this is going to be the greatest thing ever. And Shane made me, I think it just happened serendipitously. We were walking through the TV studio. Vince was going by and it was Shane or my boss, Barry, or somebody who was like, Hey, this is a great opportunity. And I'm like, is it really? And and we, we brought it over to him and, you know, I'm getting all excited and I'm saying, look, we did this, you know, new version of the Andre picture. And Vince says to me, well, um, why is Big Show not in his wrestling gear? Why is he in his suit? And I thought in my head, this is my moment where I'm going to impress the hell out of him because I know what Vince likes. He wants us to get away from wrestling, you know. And I knew the answer. And I said, well, Vince, you know, we want this magazine to appeal to people on the street walking by and seeing it. And they may not even know about wrestling. We want to get outside the wrestling bubble, not have it just be a wrestling magazine cover. You know, we want to be, we want to be different than that. And thinking this is just what he wants to hear. And he turns to me and he goes, yeah, but wrestling is what we're selling. And I just stopped dead. Like it was like needle off the record because this is the last thing that you expect them to say. Everything you ever heard about him. Like, are you kidding me? He goes, well, what do you mean? We don't want it to look like a wrestling cover. Wrestling is what we do. And I'm just stammering. And I almost said something to the effect of like, well, 
that's not how you feel about, you know, about this. Which well, okay, been- Brian, take that situation. But the problem was in some situations like that, I would actually say that. So that was probably right. not, that's probably <laughs> why I'm not working there anymore. But no, and 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 you're right. I mean, uh, ju- just when you think, you know, the answer is he changes the question that happened all the time with Vince and other, you know, on the writing team, definitely. When you, you see it, it always uh, sort of makes me laugh and slightly angers me every time I see people just bury the writing team when they do stuff because I'm like, especially when Vince is there, I can't speak to now, but it's like you have no clue what goes into the getting something pitched on a Wednesday. I, I used to, would you like to hear my schedule on the writing team, Brian? This is the schedule uh, that I had on the writing team. So on a, on a, uh, usually on a, we would usually leave on a, like on a pay-per-view week. We'd leave Saturday evening to get to the show for Sunday. And then we'd have multiple meetings in the morning. We'd have the show. We'd have a meeting afterwards that would last hours about how horrible everything was or whatever. And then <laughs> you would leave, either spend the night there or get up at the crack of dawn, fly to Raw. And uh, yes, we were on Vince's jet that held like 10, 12 people. And that was incredibly awesome. And it was something I'd never thought I'd do, but that was cool to do that. But then like Tuesday, same thing, SmackDown taped on Tuesday, do that. And then I would, Seth and I would get bumped uh, to commercial uh, on the way back because inevitably like JR or, or Triple H, somebody would kick us off, which, you know, obviously made sense. So we would fly back commercial Wednesday. And then as soon as we got in, we'd have to start working on the pitch meeting for the next Thursday and Friday, we would Thursday and Friday, we would work on the show for the following Monday. And then Saturday, we would have a conference call from 9 a.m. to sometimes 2 or 3 p.m. where I would just sit at my house all day on this phone call talking about Raw and SmackDown. And, you know, that sounds I mean, for a while, it's cool. Like anything, it's like, oh, my gosh, it's so awesome to be a part of this creative process. But and it was and I don't want to bury it or anything, but I will say that it was definitely after a while, you're like, I have absolutely zero personal time. <laughs> like I've right. like if I, I had a girlfriend going in, otherwise I would have never had a girlfriend. I don't know how any of these guys ever get married, really, if they didn't, because it's like you're never going to have time to meet anybody. And, um, you know, that was you you ran into situations like that all the time. And I was Stephanie as my boss. And at the time she was very young in her role. And this is pre triple H marriage and any of that. Um, it was just very much like, I, I just felt that she was trying to please her father and make her father proud of her, which I think we all were, right? We all want that, but I can only imagine what it would be to be a son or daughter of Vince trying to make him like, uh, you know, love them. But I just felt like it that's what sort of drove her and it made her, uh, maybe not the most pleasant person to work for, but, um, but she's, you know, she, I, I've heard she's got her three daughters now and everything's like way different now because again, she was only a year or two. She's probably your age. I'd say, you know, like she's only a year or two older than me, I believe. I think she's, um, she might be around your age actually. Cause I think she's, uh, 40 five now okay okay like she's, yeah then she i think she for some reason i thought she was a year older than me but i i'll tell you like some of the coolest things there you talk about uh how corporate it is now and it was corporate when we were there brian but it was only like 250 
300 people. And at the time that seemed huge, but it really wasn't compared to now. <laughs> but, but like mm. when you, there were things that were cool when I was at the TV station, I was asked to be on the company softball team and I would play on this team and it was coached by Howard Finkel and yes. it was hilarious. I mean, it was like, uh, you know, he, he would not play. He would just manage. And Howard was a huge Mets fan. And yes. so Howard would be in the, he would always get so pissed off at me if I didn't take the first pitch in softball. And it pissed me off to take the first pitch because I'm like, I do not want to strike out with this team. Like in these, all these people that work that I work as an intern getting sandwiches for, uh, I am not taking the first pitch. And uh, he was just so animated as the coach. And like, there were pictures with all of us. Stephanie would come to the games. I mean, this was like a community like thing, you know, these are things that are all long gone now. Yes. When I hear people that you interview, like Tom Buchanan and people that were there before me, I'm like, man, how weird would it be to be someone like Tom Buchanan to start in like the mid eighties and then leave in the mid two thousands, you know, the mid aughts and like how drastically different it is. Right. It's crazy. right. I know there are even a couple of people still there who have been there since the eighties. And it's incredible to think about even, you know, just kind of anonymous corporate office people that no one knows their names. And they've been yep. there since 1984, you know, and they could tell you stories about meeting Andre the Giant and things like that. And, and it really was. Yeah, it's gotten bigger and more corporate over the years. The process was starting when we were there because they went public in 99. Oh, yeah. And I think that really kicked it off. But I mean, even the days of. The Christmas party, those days are gone. Now oh, yeah. I, I have an experience that you don't. I have a sweet picture with me and my friend Kevin with like Santa Blassie there. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. It was awesome when, when when classy Freddie Blassie would come in. Well, he did a lot of VOs at that time at the television studio. You know, that that iconic like run of David Zahadi promos. I believe yeah. he did them where he voiced them all. But Blassie would come in as Santa Claus into the cafeteria and take pictures with everybody. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that happened then right i mean you forget about it. that's really the roots of the company like i've talked about getting gorilla monsoon was gone by the time i got there but i, I got an inter-office envelope that hit my desk once and i looked up the list of names of, of of where the envelope had been and at the top of it it said gorilla you know <laughs> it's just a crazy world to be in um now i understand what the christmas parties they're like departmental so they never have there's not like one big party where the whole company is there. I mean, we would be at it's a Christmas, an office Christmas party. And you've got Dusty Rhodes, Ted DiBiase, <laughs> Michael Hayes just walking around at a, you know, and, and there's a live band playing. It's like you're at a wedding or something. And uh, God, I remember once my my son uh, tackled. Uh, uh, Shane's son, Declan. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. They were like two or three years old each, and uh, it was horrifying, of course. I saw He's it. He's a big football star now, so that was actually right. a good hit for your kid, yeah. Well, I saw it happening in slow motion. It was one of those things where I'm like, no. <laughs> because my son, who was just, he was wild at that age, two, three years old. Oh, yeah. And he runs through Triple H's legs. Um, towards the only other little kid who was there that age, which was Declan, and just like almost gave him like a Goldberg kind of deal. And I remember Linda and I had to get in the middle of it and 
I'm just thinking like, oh, first I'm thinking I'm done, which was not the case, of course. But then I'm also thinking like, what other job do you have these kinds of experiences? Just so surreal and bizarre. I mean, they're obviously uh, accentuated by the fact that these guys are television stars that you've known forever. And, you know, everyone knows who they are. So it's way different than just I mean, I'm sure there's other companies that have, you know, uh, playful picnics like that and stuff like that. But the problem is they're not, you know, it's not Shane McMahon. It's not uh, it's not these people that everyone in the world knows who they are so it is it is cool they're they're they and i always thought shane was pretty down to earth on all that stuff i I, yeah no he was he was was such a cool boss uh he was so much fun i don't know if did you ever get to train with shane in the uh the glass room in there (laughs) well uh yeah I had I would always hear the stories of how he he seemed to take sort of a glee in oh, yeah. he, would, he would get a lot of these guys and be like hey I want to sh- want to show you some moves it's like the Stu Hart dungeon yeah, yeah yeah it was why don't you get in the ring with me and he never did that to me but I remember it happening to other people that God there was this kid we had Matt Christensen he came after you were gone and he was part of the last crew that I was with before I left he was like a whole new kind of uh, incarnation of the publications department, but he was a wrestling fan and he had actually even been an indie worker uh. and Shane kind of like <laughs> ensnared him. He was like, Hey Matt, why don't you come? I show you some things. And all I remember is him coming back to his desk later in the day. And he's just covered in sweat. Oh. He's all red and out of breath, like all looking like he went through a war, but Shane asked the closest I got is this. And um, it was the closest I ever got to actually being inside a WWE ring the whole time I was there. We're at tracks and he's like, hey, guys, you know, we're doing a story or something. Why don't you come in the ring and I'll show you some things. And I climbed up the ring steps. All right. I went to go under the ropes to get in. I banged my ankle so on the edge of the apron there, that hard part that they always talk about. But uh-huh. I hit it so hard that. <laughs> I chipped the bone in my ankle. I mean, I'm not making this up. Just going through the friggin' ropes. Yeah. I got, and it hurt so bad that I had to like, st- you know, I couldn't get in the ring. I was like, oh my God, what the hell's wrong with my foot? The most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me. He's looking at me like, Jesus Christ. I mean, this is a G rated <laughs> podcast, but the things he was calling me in jest, of course, oh, yeah, of course. I would never say on this show, but I was so embarrassed, but that's the closest I got. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to keep, you have to keep face with Shane because he's such an alpha dog. You know, it's like yes. when, when we were, Oh, I trained with him all the time. So did Seth, Matt Duda, like some of these people would get in there and it was so much fun. Like if you don't know, like most of you haven't been in that and I'm sure it's gone long gone now, but there was a room in there that was like mirrors all the way around. It was uh, near the new media department and it was just mats, like wrestling mats on the ground. And people would like go in there and they like, would like stretch and like, you know, d- do some little weightlifting. It was like a little uh you know bands and stuff in there if you want to do it but shane would take us in there and that's when i knew like um shane's very tough you know he's very he's uh people don't give him enough credit for how i mean i think they have over the years they see what he's done but they don't get like i'm sure he had to toughen up big time because he was vince mcmahon's son and he had to be and he was in wrestling so that dude can choke out a guy in about two seconds people don't realize that he that's why he's so into mma that's why he was so into ufc that's why he wanted his father to buy ufc when it was for sale many years ago but he wanted to buy pride i remember that 
Yes. You wanted all that, but some of the cool things, and I'm sure you have a million of these too, but like moments that I got to see people that, that when I first in the TV studio, that's when they still had the Funkin dojo there. And that's yeah. when Dr. Tom and Terry Funk were there. And then Dr. Tom would have his camps. And that's when like every one of the next generation was there. You know, it was like edge Christian Kurt Angle was there. Mark Henry, you know, rock would come in and train some. And it was a, just a, a ring inside the television studio warehouse where there was nothing else around it except the shipping department and a bunch of pallets and like other things on shelves. And it was just a dusty ring that Dr. Tom would, would just roll around with anyone in there. And it was great. I mean, I got to see so many, the second, the second time of the second year I went up there, it was uh giant Silva, uh, Darren draws was there a lot. And then Sean Stasiak, those are the, I have pictures with all these guys back then in my khakis and buttoned up shirt. Then I was in the ring giant Silva. I'm on his, on, I'm on his shoulder. You know, he's so, I'm a big guy, but giant Silva is a massive man. And, um, you know, like when we were in .com, like we, that was when the radicals came over to WWE and when they were like, uh, Shane's like, Hey, they're, they're in the gym right now. So we went over to the gym, like, which is 10 feet away. And we walk in there and there's Perry Saturn and all the guys just sitting there and tough yeah. enough was taped the very first season of tough enough that spawned like Nowinski and Josh Matthews, Nidia, they were all there, uh, all the time shooting in the gym. And it was just so cool in that era of reality television and, and it, the internet blowing up to be around things that were happening that people were just like going crazy for on the internet or television was happening right there where we were. Yes. Uh, you could just, you, you would see something on the internet, like a rumor hit a website and you would go, you know, I'm going to investigate this. <laughs> I'm going to see if this is really happening. I oh, remember yeah. that. I remember reading this happened to me when I, I saw a report online that said Trish Stratus, uh, you know, fitness model, Trish Stratus is coming to Stanford today to officially sign her WWF contract uh, to, to join as a performer. And I'm going, wow, is that true? And I, and I actually took a stroll around the office and there she was. I said, yeah. okay, it's true. She's here. They're, they're, they're showing her around and, or it would happen with it, it with tracks, the studio you're talking about that had the ring in it, the warehouse. They sent us down there when uh, when they bought WCW. They were just like, hey, you know, the WCW guys are at tracks working out. Why don't you go down there and see what's up? I just drove down there, walked in, and it's, you know, it's my, it's Mike. It's all the people that they initially brought in. So it's not like the hugest names, but it was like Mike Awesome and Mark Jindrak and Jindrak, Sh- yeah. Sean O'Hare and Marcus Bagwell was there. And like everybody's just kind of you know, working out and getting to meet people. And it's all right there in front of you. I was at tracks in the, in the warehouse. I just got to sit in the corner, like a fly on the wall. And I watched triple H and Shawn Michaels in the ring, working out their SummerSlam 2002 match, which was going to be Shawn's comeback match. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to make sure that Shawn was able to do it. And I was just there in the corner, just like in in the shadows, just watching it. I mean, unbelievable. So cool. I mean, yeah. I know it's like, uh, you know, Ivory would come in, like all these superstars would come in and do interviews, and like we would, they would go to the ring, we'd shoot promos. We 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 got an unbelievable access just in the Stanford. I mean, I know you went on the road and got these guys a lot for the magazine, but it was just, it was just a really cool time. It wasn't there wasn't as much red tape as there ended up being. Of course, I yeah. can't speak to the Steve Taylor years where it was like anything you could do anything at any time but um but yeah all those people are still around when i was there and so it was really cool to be a connection of like the sort of the first group of uh of people that were there for when the company actually started they were still around in the late 90s you know i mean they yeah. they uh, 
they were there since the mid eighties. And like you said, there's still some there. And if they're there, it's amazing. How many, how good, <laughs> how many versions of that company have they, they've outlived, but it was just a very, very awesome place. And sometime, Brian, when we get to chat again, I'd love to tell you about, uh, you know, my, my, the three biggest things that happened when I was on the creative team, uh, I say this uh, sarcastically were, um, uh, Al Wilson and Tori Wilson and Don Marie and that whole thing, uh, the Ch- the Billy and Chuck wedding angle, and then everyone's favorite that everyone remembers, Katie Vick. And I was there for all of that on the writing yeah. team, on the conference call where that all started. And it was just a really, uh, I mean, it's I've heard so many versions of it. And of course, mine's slightly different than everybody else's. So it's uh, there was just so many cool things that happened at that era. Yeah, and I, I can't believe we, we've already burned through an hour plus here, so it's crazy. I do need to wrap it up, although I feel like we could do this for about four hours. Uh, sure, I feel like sure. we're just getting started with some of these things. I and, and I apologize because we didn't get a chance to get to the Central States documentary, but I think it's incredible that you did that, and what I'll probably do is I'll – I'll post a link to it or information about it on the on the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook page. But uh, the documentary you did on on the old Central States wrestling territory, um, there's so much more that we could talk about. So we're I'm going to have to have you back on here at soon to do this. I would love yeah, to. No, I'm like, look, I could talk that that era of my life. Uh, I'm old enough now to sort of very much appreciate like what we got to do and, you know, the people that were involved in it and how it's changed so much now. I mean, I'm still shocked that Vince and Shane are not part of the company now. And it's just, you know, yeah. I, I can't even imagine it would be, I can't imagine it. It's, 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 I don't know what, what to even compare it to as far as like the level of their involvement and what I thought would end up being uh, the future is not anymore. And, and, um, it's just very, it was a very awesome part of my life. And like you said, I've never really left wrestling. Uh, I went to sports for a while, but I ended up continuing to promote wrestling and then do a documentary and then, you know, get to be in another wrestling company again later on that was trying to be a territorial regional thing. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard to leave as you know. <laughs> yes. Just when you thought you were out, they pull you back in. They do. Right? They do. They do. <laughs> well, thanks. You're truly somebody who I think we understand each other. And that's why it's been so great talking to you on here. This has been phenomenal. Brian, I really like your podcast and I enjoy all the uh, former the former employees to hear their perception of what they did, but also all the other guys you've had on. I think you're doing a great job. Thank you so much. There you have it, folks, my fun and nostalgic, at least for me, conversation with Chris Goff, a.k.a. Big Country, formerly of WWF slash WWE. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Had a great, great time reconnecting with Chris. As we said there in the conversation, we hadn't really spoken at all for years, many years, until we bumped into each other at Cauliflower Alley. So that was a lot of fun. And I encourage you to keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle because there's always new guests that are popping in each and every week. And they're always interesting people, as I'm sure you would agree. Next week, for example, on next week's show, it is going to be Irish Mickey Doyle, the great wrestler of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. He's been everywhere. He's done it all. He got broken into the business by the Sheik and Lou Klein in big-time wrestling. So, of course, you know that he's a very important guy to me. And he consented to be my guest on this show, so I'm thrilled. And he's going to be next week's guest for episode number 44, Irish Mickey Doyle. Also coming up in the weeks to come. 
legendary photographer of wrestling, George Napolitano, will be with us. Um, speaking of former WWE employees, a great, dear, longtime personal friend of mine, Marco Torelli, former art director for WWE, is going to be my guest. So keep on listening as we move ahead. The great, I can officially say, the great wrestling journalist, writer, photographer, whatever you want to call him, Bill Apter himself, coming to Shut Up and Wrestle in the weeks to come. I also, as we close in on the 50th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle, I have a very cool announcement I'm going to make as to who is going to be the guest for episode number 50, a special episode of Shut Up and Wrestle. As we get a little closer, I will reveal who that's going to be, but I know it and you don't. So keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle on the various platforms where you can find it. Our website is suawpod.com. There's also Podbean, Podcast Addict, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Wherever you find your fine podcasts, you will find Shut Up and Wrestle. I encourage you to join the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. We are going strong, so you're going to want to join the conversation there. And if you haven't already been listening to the wrestling news, what is your excuse? Get on that. I am the news editor for this wonderful and much-needed endeavor from Arcadian Vanguard. It's every morning we give you a 5 to 10, maybe sometimes 15-minute encapsulation of all the wrestling news you need to know read by the great mike sempervivi so uh, i encourage you to check it out the wrestlingnews.com uh, my book which believe it or not i went this entire show up until now without mentioning uh, blood and fire the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original chic you can pick up the print digital or audio copies on amazon.com or any online outlet i guess where you buy your books you might even be able to find it out in the wild at a barnes and noble store if you still have any near you and that is blood and fire um pro wrestling illustrated pick up copies of pwi i am a proud contributor to that magazine you can get those at pwi-online.com and as i mentioned at the top of the show for inside the ropes magazine it's inside the ropes magazine Dot com. If you happen to be looking for me on social media, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can find my author page on Facebook at Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author web page on the World Wide Web. So I encourage you to check all that stuff out if you have a little bit of free time on your hands. Why not? Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon, a.k.a. Solomon Grundy, asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that the future ain't what it used to be. So long, wrestling fans. 